Meet the Everyday Executive, helping you thrive in any position, from intern to boardroom. Welcome to the Everyday Executive. I'm your host, Adam Mattis. The Everyday Executive was created for you. We want to help you become the professional that you've always wanted to be, and beyond that, we want to help make you a better person in the process. The Everyday Executive offers strategies, tips, and tactics that you can take to the office tomorrow and begin implementing and start seeing immediate results. We're here for you, and we're truly interested in seeing you get better and reach your goals. This week, we're pleased to bring you Adam Silva. Adam is a former Division I collegiate athlete, West Point graduate, Army officer, and has since served as an executive in many public and nonprofit companies. Adam has a very unique perspective on leading people, leading teams, and doing so with love. We hope that you enjoy the great leadership tidbits that Adam has to offer, so enjoy this one with Adam Silva. All right, so Adam Silva, we've known each other for a few years, and I'm definitely excited to talk to you now. Before we get started, if you would, just in as few words as you can, tell us who you are and what you stand for. Great. Yeah, Adam, it's wonderful to be on with you again. Uh, it's kind of hard to believe that we've actually known each other for that long, so I really appreciate you having me on today, and I'll do the best I can. I don't know how many tidbits I'll have for you, but I'll give you what I can. So, um, again, my name's Adam Silva. Uh, I actually answered this question a few weeks ago, you know, who are you and what you stand for? I'm just a Portuguese kid from New Bedford trying to do the next right thing. (laughs) And um, I am the son of a sergeant major uh, and a stay-at-home mom and proud grandson of a middle school dropout um, who was my my biggest hero. And I've told people many times, uh, the janitor was my hero. And and he married uh, and stayed married to my grandmother for 58 years. And she was my second hero. So that's me in a nutshell. So Adam, you definitely have a pretty interesting story. And I think through your history and through your career, you've done some pretty interesting things. From my perspective and what I know of you, it seems like that everything that kind of sums up who you are as a leader today somehow started back on the lacrosse field. So do you want to talk us through kind of how that experience through lacrosse molded you in leadership, took you to West Point, and then some of the things that you learned through your experience there at the academy? Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, I think interesting would probably be the best adjective. <laughs> um, I was also talking to a, a young guy a couple weeks ago, just talking about some career moves and, and some plans that he had or has. And, and one of the things that I told him was, I have probably the most uh, unorthodox career trajectory because uh, I've never really looked at it as a career. I've just, as I said, kind of looked at it as, you know, try to do the next right thing. And for me, over the last 20 years or so, it's been predominantly uh, decisions that were made uh, that I thought were in the best interest of my wife and children and my, my overall family. Um, and you hit it on the head. I mean, so much of what I was taught, so much of what I try to do and fail often uh, to do, uh, I learned on the, the fields of friendly strike, as we say at West Point. And um, for me, a lot of that is now lacrosse and has been uh, for the last, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so. I had taken a break from the game for a while, but um, I go back to even earlier than lacrosse, and I will tell you that I learned a lot of what to do and what not to do. Uh, as a leader and as a human being uh, on baseball fields, soccer fields, basketball courts, uh, and then eventually the lacrosse field. And um, I was given the gift uh, of a lacrosse stick um, when I was in the seventh grade. Uh, It was a birthday present uh, that literally changed my life. And it's taken me, you know, all over the country. And I've met thousands of wonderful people. And uh, it was in many ways the thing that, you know, helped me 
uh, grow at West Point for the four years that I was there. And then um, it, it taught me lessons that I took into the Army and into business and most importantly, into my community and my home. You know, Adam, that's a, you bring up an interesting point there. I kind of want to get your opinion on it. So I feel like that sports have changed a lot uh, since you played and since I played. Being around coaching now, do you think that kids are still given the same luxury of learning those lessons that you were at a young age and then I was as well? Do you think they're still being taught those same values? Or do you think that message has been diluted a little bit by some of the different competitive nature between the parents and then some of the politics with the coaches? Is that? Do you think that's always been there, or do you think that's something fairly new? I think that this generation of kids is amazing. Um, I think that the greatest thing about interscholastic sports is the kids. I think the worst thing about interscholastic sports is their parents. Uh, the, the, the reality in my eyes is that these kids are no different than we were. The biggest difference is their parents and the disproportionate value we place on sports in this country and in this society. Um, it, it is unfortunate that kids don't get the chance to play multiple sports, but if you back it up even further, it's unfortunate that kids don't get to play in the yard, that kids don't get to play on the playground, that kids don't get to you know, play cowboys and Indians and soldier and run through the woods and you know, break bones and skin their knees and you know, get in fights and make up and, you know, have a, uh, you know, a push pop afterwards. That's something that we've robbed these kids of. And everything is organized. Everything is for profit. Everything is overcoached. And it's sad because still to this day, as much as I want to tout the value of athletics, and again, it's taken me to places I never dreamed I would go, the greatest lessons I learned were out in the front yard and in the street playing tackle football on the concrete, you know, and playing on the, the playgrounds uh, on post when I was raised at Fort Meade, Maryland. And, you know, that's something that kids don't get enough of. And then, you know, you again, taking a step into it, you talk about the overindulged parent, the helicopter parent. Uh, and it's unfortunate because, again, we rob our kids of the opportunity to learn life's lessons and also grow up. Um, I think more often than not, our parents, uh, you know, don't allow our kids, especially our young men, the opportunity to go through rites of passage and navigate difficult interactions with teammates and coaches and opponents and referees uh, without trying to overcompensate for it. And so I, I, I'll say this over and over again. The greatest thing is still the kids. The worst thing today is the parents. And they are much more involved in a negative way than my parents ever were. I hear these stories about parents that never miss a game or never miss a practice. And some would say, oh, what a dedicated parent. And I would say, wow, what a misguided parent. My mother rarely went to my practices and probably missed a healthy number of games because, quite frankly, I had three siblings and she was married to my father. And there are more important things in life than games. Yeah, this whole concept of going to practice blew my mind, I think, the first time I saw it. My, my parents never came to practice. That was just, I don't think any parents stayed for practice, and I don't think the coach would have liked it. I mean, they dropped us off, and we did our thing, and they picked us up when it was over. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's definitely yeah. something you see that's changed. It's just the over-involvement. And something else that you said that I think was kind of funny, it got me thinking back to my younger days of causing trouble. Um, I think one of the most valuable lessons I learned in my life was I think I had just gotten back from a visit with my family to Cape Canaveral, and I'd bought my best friend at the time a, uh, I think it was a foam space shuttle glider, and we got back and we were playing together, and we wanted to put it together, and his mom told us, you know, no, not right now, it requires super glue, and I think you're eight, and you probably shouldn't be using super glue, 
We didn't listen, and we ended up spending, I think, the next four or five hours glued together with our hands because we'd put the space shuttle together and gave each other a high five. And his mom basically sat there and said, well, I told you not to do that, and we had to learn that lesson. And, you know, you think just little things like that, kids don't experience anymore. So for one, I think in this modern age, if that would have happened and we would have been stuck together for a few hours, there probably would have been police or child abuse reports filed and everything like that. And it's just amazing how things have changed, how when we look back and the lessons that were most valuable to us are now almost looked at as completely negative scenarios. It's it's definitely interesting how that whole parenting dynamic has changed. You know, you, you go back and you think that, well, we're better off for having learned those lessons, but it's, you know, parents our age that are the ones that are really perpetrating this change. And it's just really funny that if you talk to them, I'm sure they've got similar stories. I'm sure they've got similar stories of getting in fights with the neighborhood kids or getting glued together. And they can probably tell you a story about how they learned something from that that really transformed them. But when it comes to their kids, if that happens, it's a whole different story. It, then there's a carryover in the classroom, and eventually there's a carryover into the workplace. And, you know, it, it, what I find more often than not is that we want to protect our kids from failure to the point of cheating them of the benefits of failure. You know, failure is not fatal, and yet unless you're a fireman, a cop, a soldier, or, you know, a really highly, you know, high-intensity, high-risk uh, uh, profession, and more often than not, the greatest lessons we learn come from making mistakes and failing onward or failing upward. Um, and, and not everybody, there's not always somebody to blame. You know, that, that again, for me, if you've got a kid that, that is struggling, let him struggle. You know, let her struggle. Let him figure it out. Don't go complain about the coach or the administrator or the teacher or the principal. It's not their fault. You know, my mother taught me very early on, and we've shared this with our kids. You know, you are renting space in that classroom. The teacher owns it. So you better act accordingly. And if you don't figure that lesson out in elementary and middle school and high school, you will unfortunately figure it out the hard way when it's time to go to the workplace. And Adam, I think your kids are probably no worse for wear, given that advice. I mean, you've got a son right now. He's in his freshman year at West Point. Is that correct? And then other kids that aren't doing too shabby on their own. No, they're not. And, and, you know, it's funny, though. You go through it and you live through it. We made so many mistakes with our oldest son. I mean, I just like I think my parents and my wife's parents did, you know, we're, we're the, the oldest in our families as well. And uh, there were times where we, my wife and I would look at each other. And, and, you know, my wife, Jen's a West Point grad as well. and She's had a successful career of her own. Um, but we, we would have discussions and, and intense uh, discussions about are we cheating our kids by being so hard on them? Uh, and of course, we, you know, we would quickly get over that notion and realize that, no, we're actually helping them develop character rather than just check the box and, and get the plaque to put on the wall. Uh, and as a result, I think our kids have, you know, again, not perfect, plenty of mistakes, plenty of flaws, you know, et cetera, just like the rest of us. But we have three wonderful children who continue to just do the next right thing. And again, when they fail, they fail forward. And uh, more often than not, they're succeeding. So we're real proud of them. Now, that's, that's great advice and definitely a very humble outlook. You know, if, if you don't fail and fail forward and learn from your mistakes, you know, you definitely don't have that humility that's required to, to be successful in life. So definitely good lessons there. This week's episode of The Everyday Executive is brought to you by Madison Company. For those of us that have worked in a corporate environment, I'm sure we've all had interactions with consulting firms. The big firms out there, you know who I'm talking about and you know how they work. They come into your culture, they create an environment that is dependent upon them, 
so you can't get rid of them. They create a dependency that requires us to make sure that we have them funded year after year after year, and we're even forced to make staffing decisions and cuts based on our need to keep that firm around. It's time to take a different look at consulting, and it comes from the Anti-Consultancy Consultancy at Madison Company. If your culture needs a refresh, if you want to improve those employee engagement scores, if you want to figure out ways to make your team work better together, Madison Company has the skills, the experience, and the team you need to achieve the operational outcomes that you're after. Specializing in scaled agile transformations, lean enterprise, and cultural transformation, Madison Company has the years of knowledge and the breadth of expertise to help make your goals a reality. Learn more at mattislc.com. That's M-A-T-T-I-S-L-C.com. Now back to the show. After your years at West Point and your time in the military, um, I know you got started in sales and, and kind of worked into an executive leadership space. Do you want to kind of talk us through how the lessons you learned in the military and on the lacrosse field at West Point kind of carried into sales and some of the things that you learned from those early positions in the private sector? Yeah, it's so you, you may find this much like my career, very contrarian or counterintuitive. I, I think early on, especially at West Point, I learned more through failure than I did anything else. I mean, I, I really try to look back on that time and think to myself, would I have wanted to be led by me? Uh, would I have wanted to be on the team that I was a captain of? And I don't know if I could say yes uh, to either of those questions. I think I remember a story you told me very early on where you spent a weekend or two walking the line. Do I remember that correctly? Yeah, I did some time on the area. <laughs> there's, you know, there, there's, there's no, no question about that. Um, you know, we, we, we also, you know, straddled the line, if you will, of, of following the rules. Um, you know, but I, I look back on those years as such a formidable time uh, and formative time, but I also look back on it with a lot of, I want to say regret because, you know, uh, again, you fail forward and you make mistakes and you grow, but I, I don't know if I can honestly sit here and tell you that I was motivated by all the right reasons to be the captain of the lacrosse team there, or to be a leader in the core. I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, competitiveness, but it also had to do with being a little bit arrogant or a lot arrogant, uh, a little bit lost. Um, and also just kind of an immature guy trying to find his way in a dark room. Um, you know, it, it, it's again, people don't say that when they talk about West Point because it's the premier leadership institution in the world. But from 18 to 22 years old, I was a, kind of, I was a lost kid in a lot of ways. And so I, I like to think that with that said, I, I did a pretty good job at the things I was asked and tasked to do. But at the same time, I look back now with 20 some years of, of, uh, uh, you know, uh, hindsight, and I realized that I probably did the wrong thing as a leader more often than the right thing. Excellent. So, and then getting out of the military, jumping in that private sector, getting into that sales position, and you know, if I remember correctly, you were in musical instrument sales for for a number of years. What happened that made you decide that you wanted to leave the private sector and get back to a place that was really about making the world a better place and helping other people? I got fired. <laughs> so, uh, again, in keeping with the pattern of contrarian behavior, um, so I had been in the music business for about 11 years. Um, every year was better than the next or than the previous one from a uh, sales and, and you know profitability standpoint, both as a salesman, as a national sales director. Um, but I wasn't a cultural fit there. And uh, the owners at the time had 
you know, bought the company about a year prior to letting me go. And that's all they told me when they let me go. They said, you're not a cultural fit. And I didn't really understand what that meant. Uh, but I took my severance package and went happily along my way. And I mean that sincerely. I, it was probably evident that I wasn't a cultural fit because I didn't really mind being let go. But that really opened me uh, opened my mind to a lot of things about what, number one, being a cultural fit means for an organization. Uh, and then also it opened my my mind and my, my eyes to the nonprofit world because I kind of stumbled into Wounded Warrior Project. Um, I was working with a buddy of mine locally to put on a lacrosse game. We chose a charity. It happened to be Wounded Warrior Project. And as I was making the pitch to the executive team at the time, uh, one of the executives said to me, well, what do you do for a living? And I told him the truth. You know, I'd just been let go, and I was in, in between. And he said, how'd you like to come work for us? And I said, I'd love to. Uh, and that began an eight-and-a-half-year career in the nonprofit space that I look back on with a lot of pride and, and, and fondness. And talk about the exact opposite of where you were at, going from a place where you were maybe a square peg in a round hole to a place where I feel like you probably found your cultural home. And, you know, through through the experience of the organization, it, it's hard to imagine a place that will feel quite that homey again. Yeah, I, you know, being a West Point guy who, who I felt had a debt to pay, uh, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I did enough. I don't know that I ever will feel like I've done enough to repay this country. Um, no matter, you know, no matter what I do, this country has given me and so many others so much. Um, but I felt like this was an opportunity to give back, to serve warriors, to build a great organization. Little did I know at the time uh, that it was going to be like going to work in a laboratory every day uh, and developing a culture. And one of the great things about that experience was that we actually put a tangible definition on what it meant to be a cultural fit. And we defined it as being mission-driven guided by our core values and a pleasure to work with. Uh, and so for us, you know, the mission always took, you know, mission first people always, uh, but the, the mission was always at the forefront, living and practicing and breathing our core values. And then being a pleasure to work with doesn't mean being a yes man or, or you know, just going along for the ride. It means investing in the people that you go to work with, getting to know them, developing things like trust um, so that you don't, uh, assume that they're making bad character decisions. I mean, there's so many different things. We were Lencioni fans, as you know, uh, with the five dysfunctions of the team. And so being a pleasure to work with for us, and it's so much, um, and it's counterintuitive. Again, not smiling and happy-go-lucky every day, but being the best in the world at what you do or trying to become that, uh, trusting your teammates, getting to know them, loving them enough to hold them accountable, focusing on results, et cetera, et cetera. So. Adam, I want to I want to jump in right there because you just said something that I think really defines the culture that you built um, within your organization at Wounded Warrior Project, probably better and, and maybe not better, but definitely different than a lot of other leaders in, in a senior leadership and executive leadership position. And, and it's you weren't afraid to show vulnerability and love for your team. You also weren't afraid to correct them if they did something wrong, but you were also the first one to come back and recognize a job well done in a very humble and vulnerable way. Can you kind of talk us through how you feel like that built such a strong and engaged team? Well, that's where I think it goes back to the playing field. Uh, that's where it goes back to the locker room. Um, you know, we, we talk about loving each other. Again, we're not talking about the physical, you know, love. We're not talking about being attracted to somebody. We're talking about investing in your teammates and then being willing 
to hold them accountable when they do something wrong, but also being willing to celebrate their success, being willing to get out of the way, you know, empowering your direct reports, empowering your peers, not being the one that has to be the, you know, the solution guy all the time or the answer guy, asking questions, infinite numbers of questions so that you can not only learn, but you can help people understand what they're doing even more. Uh, and so for us, love was something that we brought to the workplace. I mean, we used to do disc assessments and you have the natural style and the adapted style. Well, mine were almost always exactly the same. I don't know how not to be the lacrosse coach or the lacrosse player when I go to work. I don't know how not to be who I am when I go to the office. Now, that means that some people aren't going to like who I am. That means that some people are either report to or report to me. I'm not going to be their, their cup of tea. And I get that. And I think with some age and maturity, you get to a point where that's okay. Uh, but when you get an opportunity to kind of lead uh, and manage and then also follow, it's important to bring it and, and emotionally put yourself out there. Um, and again, we're, we're taught in this country that vulnerability is weakness. And I have, over the last several years, come to believe that vulnerability coupled with transparency is a, is a huge strength. Um, and again, there are lines that you don't want to cross or things that you don't want to bring to the workplace. But to me, vulnerability and transparency have to be part of what you do every day uh, or you're not bringing all your talents. That's such a solid point. That's that's something that we try and teach a lot of the folks that we interact with, um, the, the same thing. And I always kind of tie it back to the things that I saw from Kevin Plank at Under Armour. And, and when I am talking to executives and I talk to them about vulnerability and they say those words that vulnerability is weakness, I can't show that to my team. I always take it back to Kevin. And, you know, I, I know you've seen a lot of Kevin Plank speeches and like so many have been very inspired by them. And when you've got a man like that who's building one of the most powerful, most emulated brands in the world who can stand up quarterly on occasion, I mean, or more in front of his entire team and just lay it all out on the line. It's not all just rah, 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 we're doing great. He's not afraid to talk about where there's problems, where there's issues, where there's weakness, and be very honest about it. And you look at the most sought after, most admired companies in the world, and I think the one thing you can take in from all of their leaders is that they're not afraid to say when things are wrong. They're not afraid to tell the team that things aren't perfect. And that vulnerability is what really carries them to the next level. Because when you can show your team vulnerability, if you've built a good, strong team, they're going to elevate you. They're going to put you on their back and they're going to push you up. And the they, in this case, being the entire company, that vulnerability is so key to doing that. If your team sees you as this person who is some sort of a concrete, unfeeling perfectionist, they're going to do what they need to do to get a paycheck and they're going to go home. But if you want to go from good to great, that vulnerability is such a key part. We've all heard the statement, never let them see you sweat. And the sad part about that is that everybody knows you're sweating except you. You know, when you when you come to work with a mask on, it's really hard to take it off. And everybody sees it. And so, you know, I, I used to say when I was in sales in the music business, and I'm not a musician, I, I would use the term, I don't know, but I'll find out for you. You know, because if you try to BS your way through, everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned, you know, Kevin and Kip and Brian, and I've never felt like I was being, you know, snowed. I, I always felt like it was it was brutally but lovingly honest. Again, they were telling me the truth from a position of love and honesty. And if you can do that, there's really very few things that you can't say. Now, again, there's social tact. And, and I said with love and honesty, 
Um, but, you know, again, I think that vulnerability is one of the rated values of effective leaders and managers today. Uh, advertising, I know. Two minutes, guys, I promise it's worth your time. We can all recognize that at one point or another, we had that coach or that teacher in our lives that helped us to reach the next level, who helped push us through the barriers to take us to new levels of success. Well, just because we've reached adulthood doesn't mean the need for coaching has subsided. In fact, many would argue that you have more of a need for a coach now than ever. Check out everydayexecutive.co to learn about the coaching services that we provide. We'll help you set goals, overcome boundaries, and become your best self. All the tools you need to reach that next level of career success that we're all so desperately chasing. Now back to the show. So Adam, before we close out here, we've got maybe eight minutes or so before we kind of wrap this in. I wanted to talk real quick about what you're doing now. So, you know, post Wounded Warrior Project days, I feel like you've really had the opportunity to reflect and take a look at the mirror and and evaluate the things that are important to you. Um, Do you want to talk us through some of the things you're doing with regards to uh, motivational speaking for teams, coaching coaches, and coaching other leaders? Sure. Yeah, I thanks for bringing that up. I, I started about, uh, well, it goes back to 2007 when I got back into coaching lacrosse here in Ponte Vedra, Florida, and I started with a high school called Nice High School, and I was given a book entitled Season of Life, written by a guy named Jeffrey Marks, about a guy named Joseph Ehrman, and it literally changed my life. And I don't just mean as a lacrosse coach. I mean, it changed my life. It took all of the cultural and societal definitions of what it means to be a man, and it threw in the trash can. And it redefined being a man in what I consider to be now three easy steps. (laughs) The relationships you have, the ability to love and be loved, and we keep talking about love, Uh, commitment to a cause greater than self or a transcendent cause. And that doesn't have to be big. It it doesn't have to be, you know, Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. It just needs to be something that you're committed to. Or as one of my other friends has taught me, what's in it from me? How can I help you? Uh, And then finally living by a code of conduct. Um, And so over the last several years, I've been blessed to be involved with a lot of different teams, uh, especially in lacrosse where we go in with a character development curriculum and we work with teams. We work with talk about what it means to be a young man. And most recently, and this has been a stretch for me because I'm a soccer and lacrosse guy. I never played football, uh, but I just joined the staff at Ponte Vedra High School about two months ago. And I'm working with the head coach there, Matt Toblin, uh, who is just an amazing guy, amazing leader, great football mind. He's brought me in and said, look, we do character development, but during the season, you focus on it. And so every week we have a different character development topic. We go over it with the boys. We ask questions. I talk to them on the sidelines during practice and during games. They have access to me and the other coaches. Um, And that's given birth. That whole process has also given birth to uh, a speech that I've delivered now in a handful of different venues called Be a Man. And again, it's, I sound like an echo of Joe Ehrman uh, when I give this speech, but it, it basically takes all of the societal things, throws them out the window, and redefines what it means to be a man. Because I think at this point, if you ask me one of the greatest challenges that our country is facing right now, it's the crisis of manhood and what it really means to be a man. And so, you know, again, I use sports as a conduit to get that message across. I'm not perfect. I'm not a preacher. I'm not, you know, I, I am a deeply flawed guy, 
uh, but I'm doing whatever I can to help these kids get the message uh, that, that I either wasn't given or that I wasn't smart enough to listen to when I was in their shoes. Such powerful stuff. And we'll be sure to link your contact info in the show notes for anyone that's interested in learning more about both those professional development, athletic development type character um, programs and motivational talks. So Adam, before we wrap up here, I want to give you a chance. Is there anything that you want to kind of leave the listeners with any kind of parting words or words of wisdom? I just, you know, again, it's, it, it would be repeating. I think some of the things we've already talked about, I, you know, I, I've been able again, blessed in so many ways uh, to be uh, in a spot where I could share this message with these kids. But I'll tell you, Adam, it's the same message I brought to the workplace. You know, it all comes down to relationships the ability to love and be loved, commitment to a cause greater than self, the mission of your organization, um, and living by a code of conduct, and that's your core values. And if you can do those things, I don't care whether you're talking about being an executive, being an intern, being a student, being an athlete, or being a husband. Again, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about progress and the pursuit of perfection. That really has governed everything I've tried to do and then again, you get into the details about vulnerability and transparency, et cetera, et cetera. But it really comes down to those three things, relationships, a cause greater than self, and commitment to a transcendent cause. I think that's what this life is all about. Fantastic. Adam Silva, thank you for your time. Thank you, Adam. It's great as always, my friend. Such a great episode with Adam Silva. Adam has done so much in life, but he always maintains such a humble outlook. You would never know he is the executive that he is. If you'd like to have Adam come speak to your sports team, your work team, or anyone else in between, please check out the show notes. All of his contact information is there. So we hope you enjoyed that one, Failing Forward with Love with Adam Silva. I would like to apologize for the audio quality in this one. I'm actually sitting in a closet in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. I'm without the regular studio equipment that we typically record with. We hope you can forgive the uh, the tinny, kind of echoey sound. We promise the quality will get better with each passing episode. If you enjoyed this show, we ask that you please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google and leave a review. Those reviews are what help us continue to bring you great content and evolve as a program. We thank you for listening, and if you have any guests that you'd like to hear on the show, please send them our way. Until next time, be a little bit better every day.